Hi, this is Runa and you're listening to the Chainsmakers podcast where we share tips, insight, tools and stories from other Chainsmakers designed to motivate you to become the change you want to see in your world. Make sure you join our Chainsmakers community at runamagnus.com forward slash podcast. And now, this is your time to sit back, relax and enjoy. Meet my next guest, Shelly Pork. She is the co-founder and managing partner of the Billion Dollar Fund for Women, a mobile venture capital for women-founded firms. She's also a president of the North American Jury for the Cartier Women Initiative Awards, a board member of the Global Banking Alliance for Women on the advisory board for Cornerstone Capital, Global Investor, Mindship Capital and different funds. She's also an expert on call for Georgetown University Entrepreneurship Program. I'm Matt Shelley. She was one of our guests at the No More Boxes Breakfast Club held at the Icelandic Embassy in Washington, D.C., where we were opening up the gender box. And after spending the morning with Shelley, having really good, deep, insightful conversations, I had to ask her to become a guest on the Changemakers podcast because I think what she has to share is something we all have to listen to. Listen to my guest, Shelly Pons. Shelly, yes. women and money. Yes. I, if that isn't a box that so many of us are, are struggling with, and when I say so many, I think it is, you know, it's both women are struggling with this and men are struggling with this. Yes. How did you, I mean, speaking with you, getting to know you and seeing your track record of raising a billion dollar fund for women. The first question that popped up in my mind when I was just looking at that and, and, and seeing how the, the, all the accomplishments that you've overcome and you've done, I thought, did Shelly just, was it just, did she pop out of her mama's womb thinking women and money, no big deal or what? How did this happen for you? Well, thanks, Matt. Runa, it's, it's such a delight to be with you again and, you know, vicariously in Iceland. So that's very exciting. <laughs> Someday it will be a reality. But yes. for now, here I am and through the power of technology. So anyway, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, women and money is a critically important conversation we all need to have, whether we're men or women, because yeah. we all have women in our lives. So even if you're a man, you have your elders, perhaps your mother, your grandmother, you have your, and then you have your wife or partner potentially, if you're, if you have a partner like that, um, and or your children, colleagues, other people you care about who, um, you know, all of whom are, you know, to your point, affected by this box. And, you know, you asked me, I'll summarize those, say kind of two questions it, it, it was that were powerful that I found in what you just asked me. One is, what about this women in box issue? And, you know, what is it about that that holds us back and how do we break out of it? But also uh, maybe share with you just a bit of my story on how did I get to this? Because let's be real. Nobody's born a financial whiz. No one's born 
to deal with these issues. Um, you know, we each have different talents. We each have different areas that we end up focusing on. We each have different areas that move us, that inspire us, where, you know, we feel impassioned about something that we want to engage in or not to speak of actually have a professional life in. So all of that is important. So nobody really is born to this. But I think as adults and even as young adults, we may come to the realization that whatever our passions, whatever our aspirations, wherever we want to go in this world and however we want to make our own mark, and whether that's artistically or financially or politically or in any other way, there's no question that money affects us. Yeah. And anybody who says otherwise is, you know, perhaps born into a lot of money so they don't have to think about it. But for the rest of us who were not, you know, it's clearly a factor. It's clear a factor no matter what you want to do. So this is not really a conversation, say, about women and money slash capitalism. This is a conversation about how do we fuel whatever it else it is that we want to do with our lives. So, mm-hmm. so let's just start there with understanding that the context is important for everybody. And the specific box of women and money is important, again, as I said earlier, because for us as women, of course, but beyond that, for men as well, who, you know, who also have women in their lives that they care about and, and or who affect them, whether they care about them or not, you know? So just a quick bit about my own story. Um, you know, I came to the U.S. as a five-year-old immigrant from Israel with my family, I became naturalized American when I was 11. Ten years later, not to short circuit that whole story, but ten years later, when I was 21, my father died at a very young age, uh, at 57, very sadly, from cardiac. He, he had had his first heart attack at 46, and 11 years later, you know, pretty much at the time we became citizens, and you know, shortly, not not that long thereafter, he he passed away. I was 21. I have an older brother who's 25 and a younger sister who at the time was 14. And, you know, obviously when a parent passes, especially when you've been that close to your parents and people are estranged, that's a different kind of a problem. But when you've been that close, of course, beyond anything else is, you know, the emotional overhaul and trauma and all of that. And, and, and of course there was a lot of that and, and, you know, won't get into that. But beyond that, as I shared with you before was the, fact of how my mother responded. And my mother was this incredibly, you know, knowledgeable, brilliant, actually, I would say, well-educated, worldly, sophisticated woman, very well-read, very well-traveled. And in every aspect of her life, one would say, you know, seemingly extremely competent. She tended to be more artistic than uh, financial. You know, she, she was an apparel designer, but successful. And, you know, she had, she had many aspects to who she was. Um, she was certainly someone I adored and admired. And most of all, I had this vision of my mother as someone who was this, you know, not to call her a rock, but, you know, someone who, who was really grounded in the world, who was really you know, if not a leader per se, although she had her, you know, certainly someone who had very clear points of view and and was a very central person in the world to me. Mm-hmm. And then when my father passed away, above and beyond the what you would expect of all the emotional trauma that that represents, especially at that young age, my mother practically melted in front of my eyes because she, you know, essentially had a form of a nervous breakdown because she had absolutely no clue 
as to how to deal with her finances. She had no knowledge. I'm talking about zero knowledge of what her personal financial situation was about. My father had handled everything. And I know that knowing my dad and how absolutely loving and caring he was, that in his mind, he was taking care of all of us, in quotes. He was taking care of us because he had, in his mind, provided financial, you know, set everything up and whatever, whatever. So in theory, that should have been pretty straightforward. Everything should have flowed smoothly. I know my dad had intended that. Sadly, however, in the last year or so before my dad passed away, he, he was a small business owner. He owned five businesses, small businesses. But, you know, and for most of his time owning them, they were profitable. However, he had had a major downturn. There are major things that happened in that last year that caused his businesses to not do well. As a result of which, he started borrowing on insurance policies, whatever. And long story short, though in theory he had structured something to take care of us, that pretty much evaporated. Wow. And so, but having said that, my mother didn't even know that to be the case. She had no knowledge. She did not know how much money she had in her checking account, honestly. She would take cash out of my dad's wallet every morning if she needed money. You know, that, that was before credit cards were as popular yeah, and yeah. certainly no Venmo and no touch yeah. pay and, you know, yeah. everything that we have yeah. today. Yeah, not exactly. Yeah. You know, so, so the combination of all these things. So imagine my shock. I mean, beyond dealing with my dad's passing, my, my shock in coming to terms with my mother and what she had to cope with and realizing, oh my goodness, this amazingly brilliant, knowledgeable woman is not certainly not as it relates to finances. And as a result of that, she was put in a very precarious situation with a house, with cars, you know, with varieties. And we were not very affluent. We were, you know, I'd say middle class, but still, you know, she did not know where, where things were. And that made an indelible impression on me and on my younger sister. As a result of which, if you fast forward many more years, we both ended up focusing at some level on our careers, not just about women and empowering women. That was one side of that, that, inspired us. But the other thing was being self-empowered financially. And I remember at a very young age, pretty much at that time, developing this notion of, of course, at some point I want to have a family. I certainly want to have children, but I never, ever, ever want to be dependent on someone else. I never, ever, ever want to find myself in a position that my mother found herself in where I didn't know. First of all, I wasn't capable perhaps um, generating my own well-being, if not, you know, wealth, but let's talk, call it well-being financially. And then beyond that, not knowing, God forbid, what, you know, what my circumstances even were. Yeah. So, so that was a long way of, of, of perhaps, you know, framing part of what motivated me. So, so one side of that is empowering women, because then I realized my mother wasn't that unusual in those days. Her generation of women I mean, there were women who were capable and financially, but the, the vast generation of women were being taken care of, but they weren't. Yeah. You know, in a world where we know that women outlive men, how is, you know, so the intentions were good, the outcomes were bad, and my mother wasn't the only one, as I learned, you know, years later as I started delving into some of these issues. But most importantly, you know, that certainly inspired me in sort of the two realms, if you want to think of it, that, yeah. that I have sort of built my career around. Yeah. So really, I can just feel that rock, solid rock that you're standing on saying, I will never, ever, ever, ever go and 
be that vulnerable, feel that vulnerable, like uh, like your mom was at the time. And like you mentioned, yeah, what so many women were at the time. And when you said at the time, I quite, I'm thinking, has that changed as much as we would like it to be? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question because I think to a great degree, we do not teach children, men, boys or girls, financial literacy. So we just at the very basic levels, we're not talking about investments and whatever, just pure, you know, very basic financial literacy about, you know, what you have to think about. You know, we tend to focus kids on what's your career going to be mm-hmm. in terms yeah. of their interests and their passions and whatever, but and their talents, let's hope. But, but we don't really necessarily focus in on, oh, and by the way, what should you be thinking about throughout this process? And, you know, at times we'll provide certain interventions when, you know, they're thinking, you know, well, how much is the school going to cost? And, you know, they begin to become aware of budgets and things when they start going to college and say, oh, oops, wait, I have to manage my own budget. What's a budget? You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> and things yeah. like that. But we don't really provide, you know, relevant, comprehensive insights as the kids are growing. And even often, we don't even provide them with the experiences as a young person. And, you know, a a six, eight, and 10-year-old can also begin to experience, oh, you get an allowance, you have to budget that. You're not getting something else. You either save it or you spend it, but, you know, that's kind of it. And start thinking about concepts like that to make it real for them. Even with that, not as, you know, not in a punitive way. I know some parents who use that kind of punitively, and that's not what I'm talking about, but really more as a learning tool to help young people understand. So, yeah, so financial literacy is something that's missing from most of our curriculum. And I have a son, a 32-year-old son, who is starting a new concept charter school, and he's incorporating financial literacy into their curriculum. It's a high school, and he feels it's essential. How do we send kids out into the world Yes, we, of course, we want them to have their academics, but how do we send them out to the world unprepared financially and in so many other ways? And that is one of the key you know, elements of his curriculum. You can have all the degrees in the world, but if you don't know how to handle this, it, it's going to be a hurdle for you for sure. Yeah. Now tell me, how did the whole billion-dollar fund for women, how did that start for you? What drove you towards this huge goal? It looks. It sounds like huge, anyway. When when I yeah. think about billion dollars, but it's not a yeah. whole lot. When well, I mean, I think. Well. Yeah. Now you highlighted earlier the different sort of experiences that I've had in my life, and I guess I would say that something that I've been saying recently when I've talked at universities, which is, what you don't realize at the moment you experience different things, is that every single experience in your life is an opportunity to learn something, and however that experience goes, whether you perceive it to be positive or negative. And so at this stage of my life, I will say there's really so many different parts of my life experience. And I've, as you know, I've worked in all three sectors, you know, if you think about private sector, corporate, entrepreneurial world and investor, and then government, the State Department with Hillary Clinton when she was secretary, you know, all of those realms and, you know, politically otherwise as well, taught me a, f- a few things about kind of, you know, what's important to me and, and where the challenges lie. So building on what I told you about my sort of early story is that I really found that women are challenged in so many ways, but to come back to your notion of the box that we put women in, the box became more and more evident to me. And let me just describe what I see as the box. Yeah. So I think, you know, there are many aspects to it, but, you know, three of the core elements of the box we put women in as they, as we look at women and money and, and women, you know, this is the context for the billion dollar fund in a way. 
first of all, we talk about women lacking confidence. You know, we've already talked about the fact that we don't teach financial literacy to anyone. And they lack confidence both in terms of how they present themselves in the world, but also the kind of businesses they build and or how they lean or don't lean into their professional lives and so on and so forth. You know, the second thing we talk about is risk aversion, that women are risk averse, they don't take risks, you know, men just go for it, you know, women kind of hold back and that, and they hold themselves back in a sense. Maybe that's related to the confidence. And the third thing we sometimes talk about is that as businesses, women often target too small a target. Sometimes they're targeting other women, but often, you know, they're not thinking big enough. And, you know, the reality that I've discovered in all of my different paths is that women are amazing. It's the paradigm that we operate in, or you can call it the box, the paradigm that we operate in that more than even our whatever might be self-limiting limits us. And let me address that in the three ways that I highlighted. In terms of confidence, you know, we, we raise girls and women to be perfectionists, that if you're not at that perfect level or at that super high level, it's not good enough. Mm. And we measure women by those levels of perfection. And I think that we create, and I'm talking now society, when I say we, we, women and men, societies, organizations, and, you know, organizations largely led by men, frankly, hold women to a very different standard than men. And to the degree that you neither see role models nor are reinforced for the things that you do bring to the table, but only highlighted for things that you don't bring to the table, which is what happens when women and men are compared. Because we know that we each bring somewhat different things and they're all valuable, especially if you can integrate them, but that we miss out when either side is not being included. So, you know, it's, it's really the confidence, I think, is a big part of the paradigm that we've created around women and the standards that we hold women to. It's the obverse side. It's how we, it's what we call it when we see women not achieving at that level and, and then feeling unsure. My vision is that we need to change the paradigm. We need yeah. to change the paradigm in so many aspects of our life, but I, I'm focused on financially changing the paradigm. Yeah. So part two is this risk aversion. And, you know, over the years, there's more and more research that demonstrates women are not risk averse. Rim, women are more risk aware than men are. Perhaps because we've had to been been held to a higher standard that we are looking at and saying, okay, what's out there for me? And let me manage that risk in a way that men just go for it. And then if they get knocked in the face, well, then they deal with that. And so we have very different ways. And again, I'm generalizing to a great degree. Obviously, different women face these things differently. Yeah. Some are more, you know, overt, some are, are more restrained. But I, th- I think this notion of risk aversion is inaccurate. I think it's risk awareness. Yeah. And what many investors now realize is that risk awareness and thereby mitigating risk, risk mitigation, which women do better than men. Why are women brought in when a company blows up? Who becomes the CEO? That's when women become CEOs to fix it. Yep. Yep. Because we're better at mitigating those risks. We're better at identifying them. We're better at mitigating them and whatever, because that's kind of how we were brought up. And then the last, so I think we're more risk aware. And I think that's beneficial in a financial sense, certainly in a world where there's so much uncertainty and so much, so many things we're trying to balance out and, and certainly big, huge goals that we're after sustainability and, and, you know, eradication of poverty and all so many important things that, you know, again, that, that relates in a bit 
again, to the box that we're in and to the standards that we're held to. And then the third thing where we're talking about women not thinking big, women have been raised to be first and foremost, call them relationship managers, whether it's taking care of children, whether it's taking care of the family writ large, including spouse and others, you know, and elders and so forth. And we still, in most parts of the world, let's face it, women are 90% of the caretakers or whether it's even within a corporate or, or business or other kind of environment, you know, a lot of the caretaking kind of responsibilities, whether it's human resources or other kinds of things get relegated to women. And, it, and as such, that boxes us in, I think, that, that we, there's no expectation that we're going to conquer the world. And mm-hmm. so when we see a Joan of Arc or when we see an Angela Merkel or when we see someone else, I mean, they're the exception to the rule, let's face it. Mm-hmm. Not because yeah. there are women who would be capable of that, no. but because we haven't really encouraged women to step up to those roles and created paradigms that would empower women to do that, you know, or, or create an environment where women would naturally rise to those things because they have the abilities. So, you know, that is my sense of, you know, kind of the box and the, uh, you know, and how we deal with Shelley, th- when you're saying this, I'm thinking, do you think if women all together, and I'm aware that, I, that we're putting all women into one box here, so, sure. but, but those that we are talking about who, uh, who fit into that, those three things that you mentioned, which are really, really powerful point. Do you think that just if women would understand and would be able somehow to see that this is an invisible box that they have been placed into from their society, from their culture, mm-hmm. from what their from their, you know, upbringing, whatever it is. But if they would see it from that window, from that perspective that, hey, hmm, I've been put into this box. Do I want to be in that box? Is that book box allowing me to be who I am? Is it allowing me to grow and, if I, and, and, and be curious about money, as an example? If that would be the mindset, do you see there would be a change? Do you think that just by understanding that, it's a box. I, I think it would take a little more than that because yeah. what ends up happening uh, if we live a long time within the boxes without much awareness or whatever is we um, prop up the boxes in a way. I mean, we make it yeah. comfortable. We make it warm and friendly. We invite friends into our box and oh, yeah. invite oh, yeah. us into theirs because yeah. we're all there together. We're sharing the experience and it makes us feel better or whatever. Yeah. You know, and, and in fairness, you know, not all women have the same ambitions. Not all women, you know, seek different things. Some of us, you know, there's just an array of, obviously of we're, we're all individuals yeah. in that way. And so I don't think awareness would be enough because I think, awareness is part one, but I think that, you know, there has to be a motivation. A so motivation, yeah. In your box, then, yeah. no, then, you know, and I think many women are, you know, I mean, yeah, I think yeah. and many men as well. Yeah. yeah. yeah no well, and men for sure are, because yeah. they're in the power positions. I would yeah. say men, you know, and actually in fairness to men, I would say too, the downsides of their being in power positions it's probably not evident almost to any of us, you know, I mean, there's more and more research on it. And if this is the field that you're interested in, you might be aware of it, but men, men suffer too, as a result of the boxes, right? Oh, I mean, oh gosh, they suffer immensely. Yeah. yeah. 
so yeah, indeed, I, I think that awareness is the first step, but as with all change, yeah. it takes more than awareness. I think that there needs to be the motivation and uh, whatever. But I do think that there's, when I, when I look at my kids' generation yeah. and the way they see, and, I, and this is certainly a function of technology, where from a very young age, they had a very powerful view onto the world in a way. First of all, I traveled with my parents, so I did have some view of the world. I mean, my parents weren't very affluent, but one of their priorities, because that's what they love to do, was traveling. So I did get to see you know, a fair amount of the world and different things. And I think seeing the other world, seeing how other people live and recognizing that, oh, that helps you get out of your box. Because even if yeah. there's still women's boxes all over the world, the mere difference of those boxes, you know, helps us get a perspective, I think. So I think that that's part of it. I think the other thing is, um, so I, and I look at these kids and I see them, number one, being so aware of the rest of the world. And number two, because of, again, technology and how they've been yeah. raised and primed, so aware of the issues in a way that I was aware of some issues. I mean, you know, we had the Live Aid concert. We knew that there was famine in Ethiopia or in Africa. You know, we knew at a high level, but these kids are deeply rooted in the issues that they care about. Yeah. You know, one great example of that, that, that always stunned me in the early part of my time at the State Department where I was running the Global Entrepreneurship Program, which was a program that was meant to foster entrepreneurial ecosystems throughout the world. Shortly after the Arab Spring, about nine months after the Arab Spring, we hosted something called Startup Weekend in Alexandria, Egypt. Wow. So we're talking about in less than a year after, you know, all yeah. of the revolution in, in Egypt was happening. Yeah. And it was still, there was a lot still going on at the time. Oh, yeah. We oh, hosted yeah. the Startup Weekend. A Startup Weekend is a 72-hour event. It's, it's run by a global nonprofit that's now owned by Techstars. And they host, essentially, it's like a 72-hour hackathon where you come together, young people come together. They each have their own ideas about a business. They're set into, you know, random groups. They have to present their ideas and then vote on them. So one idea gets selected in a group of seven to eight or 10 kids. And they're usually, you know, like when I say kids, so something like 18 to 22 year olds, maybe kind of high, you know, more or less college level. Yeah. They select one. And then for the rest of the weekend, they're working on different elements of it, including finally at the end of the weekend, having a prototype of the app that represents your business. Oh, wow literally coding it yeah. while they're there in the 70s. So they work like yeah. nonstop, like crazy nuts for a weekend. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's what Start Weekend is. But come back to the notion of, so we did this. We ended up having 2,100 young people apply to be part of the Startup Weekend. Just to give you a point of reference, in the yeah. U.S. or in other parts of the world, when, we, when you do a Startup Weekend, you do it at a university, but usually you have 80 to 120 people apply and maybe 50 to 80 participate in the end after all the sorting out is done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had 2,100 people applying, young people wow. applying, including, including uh, we had, um, and then we ended up having 800 participating. So that's like 10 times what normally is, with 200 women included in that 800 without us ever having done special outreach to women's groups or anything. Just we were, you know, kind of promoting it at universities to, to pull it together. You were at the right time at the right. But it was so yeah, it was the right topic. And, yeah. And the stunning thing was that, you know, when we got together with it, you know, I, I often would get asked, well, you know, you did, you've done this work all over the world. How are kids here different from kids there? And I'll tell you, 
kids, because of technology, they're more alike than they are different. At least those who have gotten to go to university. I mean, obviously, that's a special cohort. It's not all kids. Not all kids get to do that. But that cohort of kids, between the technology and their studies, it was stunning. I mean, I, you know, we could have transplanted our kids or your kids yeah, there yeah. back and forth. They knew what was going on in the world. And that was really what drove the Arab Spring, because they saw that people, young people all over the world were using technology to realize their passions and their purpose. And, but they weren't having that same opportunity. So it was really an economic revolution that was going on there to begin with. It became a political revolution later. Yeah, yeah. To begin with, it was all these young people saying, I've got the knowledge, I've got the technology, and I've got the awareness, but I have no jobs here to, you know, to yeah. hone my skills, to apply myself, to try to build a future, whatever. And that's what really drove that. So, so it, it was quite stunning and, and really an eye-opener for me. This goes back to when you're saying this and with that drive of need, you know, mm -hmm. that really need to go in and do something, which was at that time with the, um, the, 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 what was going on in Alexandria. It reminds me of what was going on in, in the world back in 2008, 2009 and the economic mm -hmm. crash and the need, like for instance, here in Iceland for, startups for entrepreneurs to exactly. step in to for collabor new type of collaboration it was a lot of new good things that happened in the crash absolutely and so that goes back to that i want to take that point that need mm -hmm. and women and money so what do you see the world need needs to see in order to see the need for putting women and money together and when it's on that you know you're talking about educational system you're talking about a lot of things but what needs to happen to wake us up yeah well that's a good question well first i'll give you the ps on the alexandra story yeah. so at the end of the whole competition the winner was a woman-led team Ooh. of six young people and she took her and it was her idea and then the others worked on it with her to come up with the whatever She took it to one of Egypt's top businessmen mm -hmm. to get it funded. He did. Yeah. yeah. And then she got accepted into a, a business incubator here in the U.S. So the next time I saw her, I had been asked to go speak at a tour of women, you know, women entrepreneurs from the Middle East and who were here as part of that incubator. And then they were going around the country as part of that program. And I had no idea because I, I hadn't kept that kind of yeah. close touch with her. And the next thing I know, I'm, I'm sitting with a woman, a group of women entrepreneurs to talk to them. And there's Sarah Galal, the widow of our start. So that's what we need. We need an ecosystem that recognizes that young people, both men and women, yeah. have these talents, have these passions, have these ideas, are innovators. And if we support yeah. them, you know, they will help themselves. I mean, they, they will do what they need to do to move ahead. And she's yeah. been very successful and she grew her company. She actually uh, ended up uh, moving to Canada as it turned out because she couldn't, you know, she, she had a limit into what she, how she could grow it there in, in, in the region. So, so anyway, so what we need is we need to change the paradigm. We need to get out of this box to use your lingo in terms of creating environments that are conducive to women and men. 
And, you know, the, those environments don't just have to do with access to finance, which is where I'm focused right now. And I've focused on many other areas in the past. It has to do with, first of all, recognizing the ones who have the talent, the energy, and the whatever to scale businesses to, who have not only ideas, but who are, then have the what it takes to really pursue a business idea. And that could be men or women. You know, we're not talking. And ideally, it's men and women together because we do actually bring different things. I mean, there's so much research, as you know, whether it's corporations or entrepreneurs, where it's, it's such a better outcome if we have diverse teams because we oh, bring yeah. a lot of, you know, good things to the table. So, so changing the paradigm obviously has to do with mentorship, has to do with creating opportunities for training and exposure to ecosystems so that you can learn from everybody, creating opportunities for mentor, I mean, mentor peer mentoring, I was going to say, mm-hmm. you know, where, where entrepreneurs teach each other. I mean, we yeah. learned that one of my other experiences was I was chair of a board of a nonprofit called Count Me In. I think I shared that with you. Yeah. And we had a great program called Make Mine a Million where, you know, even though only two- I remember that program. <laughs> yeah, 2.4% of women-owned businesses yeah. ever got to a million dollars in profit. Ours yeah. was over 30% when, after they did our mm-hmm. program. And, and it was a combination of helping them think bigger and getting beyond their risk awareness to see, you know, to ask the question. So how do you address risk awareness? Well, start with yeah. what's the worst that could happen? What's uh, the worst that can happen? And then putting out your MVP out there to see if it resonates with anyone. And then also targeting big audience and so forth. So, you know, I, th- I think that bringing around, you know, cre- changing the paradigm for women's support. And changing so all those things paradigm. matter. But then last but not least, of course, is access to funding access to funding and for women in particular, we really need to focus on the fullest spectrum of of funding. We recognize that first it's the founder's own resources, then it's customer revenues. It should be the first thing that, you know, she thinks about. Then maybe family and friends, then maybe some bank or crowdfunding, then maybe uh, some uh, non-dilutive grants applying to a program like the Cartier Women's Initiative Awards that gives away over a million dollars of non-dilutive grants every year and many other competitions around the world, on and on and on. And then last but not least is venture capital. So I, at this point in time, I've landed on venture capital because venture capital, in my mind, as a challenge for women is a particularly pernicious one. And here's why. You know, everyone's aware of the gender pay gap. In the U.S., that's 80 cents on the dollar, but very few people are aware of the gender investment gap. And that is that only two cents on the dollar goes to women-founded companies. And even when you add in gender-diverse teams, that's only another 12% or 12 cents on the dollar. So we're talking about 86 cents on the dollar goes to male-only founded teams. Now, why does that matter? You know, we're sitting here and we have, you know, if we're living a good life and we think that, oh gosh, I've got my Twitter, I've got my Facebook, I've got my whatever, I've got my Apple phone, I'm good. And those were all founded by men. That works for me. But what you don't realize is what we're missing, what innovation is not getting to the table, what innovation is not getting funded, and the kinds of problems that we now need to and will continue to need to solve in the future. So whether it's about saving water when our planetary ability to serve massively grown populations, whether it's creating new models for family planning, whether it's innovations addressing climate change, everything from predicting climate change to addressing climate change, you know, all of the above. And I have seen women innovators doing all of those things, or whether it's medical, you know, so much medical technology is focused on men as the, as the uh, patients. 
But we know now very deeply that, women, you know, biologically we're different creatures. And we, even yeah. when we experience the same thing, a heart attack or what yeah. Name, yeah. name a disease or a condition, we experience it differently because we are made differently. So, so all of that. And, and, you know, eight out of 10 times a woman is going to identify issues for women's health that a man will never identify because he doesn't experience it. Even yeah. a well-meaning man, even a well-meaning no, yeah. you know, so, so, Having women's innovation funded is critical. And today we are going backwards. We're not only not advancing or not advancing quickly, we're actually going backwards. Total venture capital is growing, but the amount of money that goes to women founded businesses is actually declining the proportion. And, and it's re- a result of a couple of things. One, it's a result of the fact that more money is going into larger and larger businesses. Well, guess what? If your company doesn't get funded in the early stages, you never get there. I mean, you would be the outlier. There are a couple who have done it, a couple of women who have done it without funding, but it's very rare. So if we don't fix it, we're we're going to be missing half the talent on our planet. Yeah. You know, often when I start a presentation, I say, imagine if Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg had been born in Africa, Latin America or Asia or some other place other than, you know, on the West Coast of the United States, and not even the U.S., because this vast amount of the U.S., you could have been born in Cleveland, Ohio, you still wouldn't have done it. Mm -hmm. If, If you don't happen to have, you know, what do they call that, the luck of the the birth, you know, yeah. thing where you happen to be born in a place that has fostered yeah. entrepreneurship, you're not less talented. You know, they could have mm-hmm. been born somewhere else and we would never have realized those innovations. Yeah. It's yeah. a combination of the talent that, you know, with, with how that talent gets nurtured. And, and I know we all know that. I mean, and so this is what our call it mission is all about. It's not just about empowering women. It's, we believe that it's about ensuring that we, 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 the global, we have access to a world of innovation, not just from men, but from, from everybody. And then of course, if you layer on other minority groups, it gets even worse. And it's now because they're less talented, less determined or less eager or innovative for that matter. It's the fact of where they were born and how, how that translates. So that is that covered. is so true. Where can we will we will put all the information about the billion dollar fund, your website, and where people can go in and they can find out more about what you've been doing, Shelley. Shelley, I could talk to you forever about women and money, um, because this is a, a topic that is I think is fascinating, and I think is something that I want to see more diversity in the world, just like you, for us to really. I mean, just simply like you're saying, it simply does not make sense that we're not tapping into this talent, this knowledge, this, this immense insights that we have from people all over the world, whether it's a woman or a man. But just leaving something out is just, it's a waste. And let's not go there. Exactly. That will exactly. be, that's called a human waste. And <laughs> that's not a good waste. Shelley, I... We're, our time is up. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you so thank much you. for being here. Okay, well, thank you. Thanks, Runa, for your interest and wishing you all the best in everything you do. Thank you. Was this podcast of value for you? I sure hope so. 
If so, feel free to share the love and give us your generous review on iTunes or Stitcher. And remember that you can always go to runamagnus.com to find out more about the changemakers and how we can help you drive the change you want to see in your world.